This is Wisdom Wednesday, episode number 13, and today we talk sex. Welcome to The Marriage Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Price, international marriage interventionist and best-selling co-author of Success Breakthroughs. On this show, I provide innovative solutions for marital success by focusing on personal development and relationship transformation. Every week, I'll be talking with thought leaders from around the world and will be providing your weekly dose of wisdom so you can catapult yourselves to marital success and true life fulfillment. I ask you to love one another, encourage and support each other, and live with passion. Are you ready? Here we go. Yo, I don't think we should talk about this. Come on, why not? People might misunderstand what we're trying to say, you know? That's a part of life. Welcome to The Marriage Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Price, and today we're talking about some good stuff. Yeah, why don't we? Let's talk about it. (laughs) Let's talk sex. All right, guys. Today, this episode, it's all about restoring intimacy within marriage. Are you in a sexless marriage? Or do you have infrequent sex? I'm talking just a few times a year. Or do you have sex often, but it feels more robotic, more routine, and really kind of just mundane? Restoring sexual intimacy within marriage begins with a holistic understanding of what a whole, sacred, healthy, and successful relationship looks like. Sex, it's a powerful force, a deeply bonding experience, and a sacred sharing of bodies, minds, and spirits. And this is, in great part, the glue that holds a beautiful spiritual union between partners. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not coming from a superficial place and saying that sex holds a relationship together, that the sex itself is the glue. What I'm talking about is the bond that is the glue in the relationship, right? It's the bond that sex creates because sex is a great avenue to strengthening and deepening that bond between partners. It's the bond that is created from experiencing a very healthy, respectful, and loving sexual relationship together. Hope that makes sense. Sex is bonding, of course, but it's also addicting. I'm wondering if you know that sex is actually addicting. Now, I'm not talking about a cigarette, alcohol, sex type of addiction, although there is actual sex addiction. But sex is addicting, and not because it feels good, but because of the chemicals that are released in the brain during sex. I'm talking about endorphins. Those are pain-reducing and pleasure-enhancing chemicals. Another chemical is called dopamine, and that provides a very euphoric feeling. And then the third most common is something called oxytocin. 
nicknamed as the love hormone. They're all very bonding, these chemicals that occur in the brain. These are just three, but there are lots and lots of chemicals that are released in the brain during sex and during orgasm and even after orgasm that really creates a bond between people. Now, sexual problems are a primary cause of broken marriages. So today, we're going to be talking about how to restore sexual intimacy. And what I want to do, I want to start out with the outline for today's talk, okay? So today, the first topic that we're going to talk about, it's really just a list of things that I want you to remember while you're trying to go through this process of restoring sexual intimacy in your relationship. The second component to the talk today is things that I want you to not do. These are common mistakes that people make all the time. They think they're doing the right things. They think they're doing things to enhance their commitment, to enhance their bond, their connection, to really pull things back together. But really, these, these specific things actually hurt the relationship, drive a wedge, and push you further apart. So I'm going to give you a list of things not to do. The next component is a list of steps. There are nine steps, and these are things I definitely want you to do. There are nine very specific steps to restoring sexual intimacy and in marriage. Okay, so I'm going to talk you through all nine of those steps. The last component that we're going to talk about are medical conditions. Now, there are some medical conditions that may prevent you from having sex, that may prevent you from enjoying sex when you have it, or might prevent you from enjoying sex to the point that you are capable of reaching orgasm. But either way, we will talk about medical conditions and you know what to do in that situation. So right now we're going to dive into the first part, and that is talking about some things that I just want you to remember as you're going through the process of restoring sexual intimacy in your marriage. Number one, I want you to remember that intimacy requires effort and struggling is normal, okay? Neither partner should expect their spouse to automatically know what the other person wants and needs. And when I say wants, you know, as in desires and needs, I'm talking, yes, sexually, but also communication, connection, a connection that's outside of sexual intimacy. You really are not mind readers. You don't know exactly. You think you know what your spouse wants. You think you know what your spouse needs. Maybe you do. Maybe you know some things, but it's always good to have these conversations and to have them often because we all change. As we go through life, we evolve, we change, we grow. And with that comes different needs, different desires, all right? In troubled marriages where intimacy has faded or disappeared, there's usually one deprived partner, one who longs for sexual intimacy more than the other. And this deprived partner, after a long period of time, after a long period of constant rejection, they can blame the other partner for this disconnect and resentment will start to build. So this is the next thing I want you to remember is that in relationships, when you have a couple, you typically have even, even the healthiest, happiest, most joyful, most successful relationships, there's always going to be one person who has a stronger sexual desire than the other. And if not handled correctly, the one with the stronger desire can actually feel deprived. And so it's really important to acknowledge which position you're in. It's not a bad thing. This is nothing to be ashamed of, whether you're the one who wants and needs more sex or not. It's nothing to be embarrassed about or feel ashamed about. 
or feel guilty about. This is going to be the case because no two people are always alike. And so you're going to have one person who wants and needs sexual intimacy more often than the other. So figure out who's who. Have a conversation about this. Discuss what your needs are, what you need, what you can do without, how often. But be on the same page. Be really, really clear and do whatever you can to help the other out, to help each other with your desires, with your needs. Be patient with each other and just offer each other a lot of encouragement and support going through this. I hope that makes sense. The other thing I want you to remember involves condemning and blaming, right? So condemning your partner by telling them that they are sexually selfish or that something must be wrong with them, either psychologically, physically, or emotional because they need more sex or because they're not always up for it. But labeling your partner as, you know, being something wrong, condemning them or blaming them, this is going to make the situation worse. So don't ever do that. Don't condemn your partner. Don't say what's wrong with you. Something might be wrong. Don't make it about a, you know, a psychological issue, physical or emotional. Just acknowledge what is and realize that this is something that we will deal with and that we can talk about, but don't condemn don't blame, don't place judgment, whether it's too much or too little or too frequent or, or not enough or not pleasurable enough because placing these types of adjectives, these, these words to describe really can hurt feelings, drive the wedge between you deeper, and it's going to make the whole situation worse. So just be really mindful of that, okay? The next thing I want you to remember is ignoring the problem or denying that there's a problem that's going to create further damage too. So you don't want to ignore the problem. If one of you is feeling deprived, if the other is is just in a place in life where sex is not a priority or you're not enjoying it as much, you don't want to ignore the problem. You've got to talk about it. That's the very first step is talking about it. Do not ignore it. Don't pretend that it's not an issue. Please don't fall into the trap that time will heal, time will take care of this, or that it will get better in time. So many couples really believe that if they just exercise patience, pretend that it's not there, or, you know, kind of hang tight for a little while, hoping that it's going to get better in time, hoping that things will increase or become more enjoyable, often it just gets worse and worse. It's like a snowball effect. It cascades, right? So don't ignore it and don't deny that there's a problem. If there's a problem, you've got to talk about it. You've got to face it. That's the very first step, okay? Next up, um, next thing I want you to remember is that there can be a lot of pressure, a lot of embarrassment, and a lot of intimidation surrounding sexual intimacy, especially for the lack of orgasm or easy arousal. A lot of people in relationships feel pressure, whether you're the one who has a greater sexual desire and need, or you're the one who doesn't have as much need as your partner. You can feel pressure, pressure to either initiate more, pressure to have sex when you don't want to. You can feel pressure to back off and not have sex as much because you might feel like you are pressuring your partner. With this can come a lot of embarrassment, a lot of intimidation surrounding your sexual intimacy. If one person either is having difficulty reaching orgasm or having difficulty becoming aroused altogether, of course there's going to be embarrassment and shame and guilt and 
so many different negative opinions because of it and the negative emotions that accompany it. And these negative opinions in your own mind can cause the negative emotions. And again, that's just another snowball cascading effect there. This is going to get worse and worse. So what happens in this position is that many couples find it easier to not have sex than to deal with the frustration and the guilt and the embarrassment and the shame and the pressure that comes with it. Again, if you're feeling pressure, embarrassment, intimidation, any of these negative emotions, please don't ignore them and don't deny that they're there. It's not going to get easier by not having sex in the long run. That's going to make everything worse, okay? So these are conversations that we're going to have to have and have to deal with, all right? The next thing I want you to remember is that stress affects every area of life, including sexual intimacy. So remember, work stress, family stress, negative thoughts, negative emotions, depression, anxiety, a death in the family, any of these things and more can all cause physical tension in a person's body. And that makes getting in the mood rather difficult for many, especially women. Now, there is a huge difference between men and women. Men in extreme stress, most of the time, can become turned on or get in the mood just about anywhere, anytime, especially when they're younger, 20s, 30s, 40s, sometimes even 50s. But it can be an issue for some men, and we see this more so in women, the physical tension. A woman's body has to be physically relaxed in order to get in the mood and become turned on and get ready for sex. So you really do want to be mindful of this. So if you've experienced any kind of stress, even if it's been a physical illness, these things, these things alone can actually cause enough physical tension in the body that it can make it really difficult to be primed and ready to go. So just keep that in mind. If your partner has been going through a hard time, if there's work stress, a death in the family, any, any of these negative things I've mentioned, you do want to exercise some patience and realize that your partner might be tense and might be stressed. Again, don't ignore it. Don't pretend that it's not there. Talk about it. All right. Give each other a massage. Do something like that to help physically relax the body. Okay. But don't ignore it and don't pretend it's not there and don't assume that everything is going to get better in time. All right. The next thing that I want you to remember is that women are typically like a pot of water. <laughs> it takes a while for her to reach the boiling point. Men, on the other hand, are typically turned on like the strike of a match. You strike a match, he's on fire, he's ready to go, fireworks happen almost immediately. But women, we're like a pot of water. You know, you have to walk into the kitchen, you have to pick out the right pot, you have to carry it over to the sink, you have to put it under the faucet, you have to turn the water on, you have to wait for the pot to fill up with water and you have to wait some more and you have to wait some more. And then when the pot is filled, you have to carry the pot over to the stovetop and you have to turn the burner on and you have to wait for the water to, to heat up slowly, slowly, slowly. This is very much like most women. You know, there's always the norm. There's always some men who take a little while to be turned on and there's always, you know, a small percentage of women who are more like that strike of a match where they're, you strike it and they're ready to go. But typically speaking, men are like striking a match and fireworks ensue. And women are more like a pot of boiling water. It just takes a long time. So this is something that both men and women need to remember. Women, you need to remember that most men are like that strike of a match. They're ready to go, okay? And then men realize that women just take a little bit longer. And this is just how the human body was made. This is how we are built. 
This is science. It's proven. I think most human beings know this, but just in case you're the one person on planet Earth that doesn't, I'm telling you, this is just a, a biological difference between men and women. So with your partner, exercise patience and understanding in this area. The last thing that I want you to remember as you're going through the process of trying to restore your intimacy is to know that the human brain is wired to connect with others for emotional attachment. And this emotional attachment does occur during sex. It's part of those chemicals that I talked about earlier, the oxytocin and all those chemicals, they help Remember how I said that sex is addicting? This is how it's these, these chemicals are released. And this is when the emotional attachment occurs is with the release of these chemicals. And the more often that you have sex, the stronger that emotional attachment is going to be from that person. And that's why, you know, when people have sex outside of marriage, early in teens, there's a lot of high emotions and a lot of drama that can occur. That's why it makes it so hard for people to walk away from each other after having been sexual because you have this emotional attachment to each other. So in relationships, if used correctly with a lot of love and respect, you're going to form this really beautiful emotional attachment, okay? The human brain is really wired to connect in this way. And so you want to remember this, not just when you're thinking about sex, but also leading up to sex, right? You want to have especially if your relationship has been suffering and sexual intimacy is gone and even emotional intimacy has started to fade away. You want to build this emotional attachment before having sex. We'll get into that a little bit more in, in a few minutes and what to do, but now I want to really segue into the next section of our talk and that's what not to do, all right? So let's talk about all the things not to do because there are a handful that you probably think are good and might be helping your relationship, but really are preventing you from restoring intimacy. All right. So number one, stop complaining. And I'm not talking about your sexual relationship together. I'm talking about stop complaining about anything and everything in life to yourself, to your spouse, to anyone around you. In marriage, both spouses like and need to express themselves, right? But how you express yourself is of crucial importance, all right? And what I mean by how you express yourself being of crucial importance, just listen, there's a big difference between saying, you know, honey, I, I love you. I really, really love you. Big difference between that and you know I love you, right? So there's a real big difference in how you express yourself. Which one would you rather hear? I love you or you know I love you. <laughs> no, nobody wants to be talked to that other way. It, it just kind of makes, it gives you chills and it makes you tense and it's all in how you express yourself, okay? Now, talking about complaining, complaining creates defensiveness. Even if you're complaining about the weather, it's going to make your partner tense and defensive, okay? So just remember this. Complaining creates defensiveness in your partner. It creates resentment, especially if you're complaining about them or something that has to do with them, the house, something not being clean or organized, anything to do with them, their job, not making enough money, whatever it is. If you're complaining about them or, or something that has to do with them, it's going to cause resentment towards you. They will not like you anymore. <laughs> it will cause frustration, bitterness, and it can actually lead to contempt and even hatred. So in other words, you end up not wanting to be sexually intimate with your partner if you're on the receiving end of complaints. Even if they're not about you, if your partner is constantly complaining about the weather, their job, 
the children, the household chores, the extra weight they can't get rid of, whatever it is you're complaining about, your partner is going to eventually not want to hear your voice. They're not even going to want to hear you speak because they know it's going to be negative, even if it has nothing to do with them. They're just not going to want to hear your voice. And that is not a good place to be in marriage and long-term relationship because, you know, you want your partner to desire you. You want your partner to crave you and to want to be around you, right? And so really you don't want to complain about anything because that's a whole nother topic and discussion in itself and what it does to the brain and your physical health and mental health and everything. But for now, let's just, let's just go with this. Just stop complaining (laughs) because it's not fun to be around a person who constantly complains about anything. And remember this, intimacy is allergic to complaints. <laughs> I like to kind of joke around and say, I'm allergic to cold weather. I like cold weather for two weeks out of the year and then I'm ready for spring, summer, and fall again. But in relationship, intimacy, especially sexual intimacy, it's allergic to complaints. So the more you complain, the more your intimate relationship is going to suffer. And I don't mean just your sexual intimate relationship. So Any women out there who are saying, oh, if I just complain more, my husband's not going to want to have sex with me as much. That's not how it works. (laughs) Your spouse will not like you. It's it's no longer about sex. They just won't like you as a person, (laughs) right? And so you have to understand that if you're complaining a lot, your spouse isn't going to want to hear your voice. They're not going to want to spend time with you. They're not going to want to hold your hand. They're not going to, they're just, your your connection in all areas is going to suffer, not just sexually. Okay. So that's the number one item that you want to stop doing immediately. Stop complaining. Number two, stop criticizing. Now, most human beings do not enjoy receiving criticism on a regular basis. Some people like to torture themselves and like to hear it. I, I, I don't know a single person like that, but really I think, I think everyone knows that human beings just do not enjoy receiving criticism especially if it's on a regular basis. So let me ask you, how would you like to be constantly criticized? Just stop and think that for about it for just a minute. Imagine your spouse, your partner, your child, your brother or sister or parent or your best friend, anyone constantly criticizing you about your looks, your voice, your intelligence, your humor, the lack of all of these things. How would it feel to constantly be criticized? Just think about that for just a moment. Also think, would you like to be sexually intimate with your partner after they say all these critical comments to you? So just for a moment, visualize, close your eyes if you need to, but visualize your partner telling you that you don't make enough money or that you don't do enough around the house or that you're not fun to be around. And you need to be motivated more. You need to get up and do more things or you need to be more fun and more funny and sweeter and, you know, more playful. And you're not this and you're not that. And just criticism after criticism after criticism. Now, imagine receiving all of that from your partner. They just unleash on you. They're critical, critical, critical. Now, do you want to have sex? Most likely not. It's like, hey, babe. You're so lazy all the time. Why can't you keep up with the laundry or the yard work or, or the cleaning or the mowing? Why can't you do the, why can't dinner be ready on time? Why can't you greet me with a nice hello? 
Why do you have to dress like a slob all the time around the house? Why can't you pick up after yourself? Now, do you want to have sex? <laughs> the two just don't go in hand in hand. I think you get the point. Here it is. We all have imperfections. You do not need to point out your spouse's vices, mistakes, or flaws. Chances are they already know what they are. Once a couple gets to the point where they experience criticism, complaints, and aggression on a regular basis in those areas, listen to this statistic. They have an 80% chance of divorce within just a few years. That's pretty profound. That's what criticizing does. Many studies show that if there's a lot of criticism present, they can almost predict when you're going to get divorced down to, you know, within like a year or, a year or two. Criticism is very negative and it's very damaging to the human spirit. It is not a motivator. It's not inspiring. It just causes damage. So that is point number two of what I want you to stop doing immediately. And that is criticizing your spouse. Point number three, the third thing that I want you to stop doing is being controlling. No one likes to be controlled. And when you are constantly harping on the same subjects, when you're constantly complaining or criticizing, your partner will feel as if you're trying to control them. Now, believe it or not, if you're complaining all the time, your partner is going to feel like you're trying to control them by telling them in a passive aggressive way what you don't like. But that translates to them as what you don't want to see from them, what you don't want to receive from them, what you don't want to see them do, that kind of thing. If you're constantly criticizing them, they're obviously going to feel controlled because the more criticism you dish out, the more they feel like you're trying to change them. And when a person feels like they're trying to be changed, they definitely feel controlled, right? So all of these things make your partner feel like you're trying to control them, right? So no one in this position wants to make themselves vulnerable through sexual intimacy. If you feel controlled all the time, criticized, you're not going to really like this person, very, your, your partner very much. And so obviously you're not going to want to experience sexual intimacy. When a person feels controlled, they feel smothered. They feel pushed down. They feel oppressed. And when you're feeling those things, believe it or not, you are not free to express yourself through love, sexual, physical, sexual love included. Now, if you're on the receiving end and you feel like you're being controlled by your partner, then you fully understand what I'm talking about. And we're going to get into the remedy of these things in just a minute. If you're the person who is constantly trying to control your spouse because you feel like they're not stepping up in the areas that they need to be. So you feel like you have to complain or criticize or just get up and do things yourself or push them into doing things. Realize you are hurting your relationship. You're breaking down the bond. You're breaking down your connection and you're actually slowly peeling away very crucial parts of commitment to your relationship as well. So stop the controlling. The fourth thing that I want you to stop doing is stop trying to force sexual intimacy. You really want to stop talking about the fact that you don't make time for sex or that sex isn't as great as it should be. This is what you really don't want to say these statements. Those are very damaging, right? So stop trying to force a sexual relationship if you are by talking about it in this way because this will make your partner feel pressured and intimidated and then you're going to wonder why they can't relax enough to experience a beautiful sexual encounter. 
So if you're constantly talking about how you don't make time for sex or that it's not as great as it used to be, it's not as fun or not as spontaneous, you're really putting a lot of pressure and that's going to feel very forced on your spouse. So you don't want to talk about it in these ways. Now, yes, you want to have these conversations. We're going to get into that in just a minute, but you really don't want to have conversations around the fact that you're, you're not making time for sex. Okay. There's other ways of, of handling this. Okay. So those are the four things, just to recap quickly, those are the four things that you need to stop doing immediately. Stop complaining, stop criticizing, stop controlling, and stop trying to force sexual intimacy by pressuring or talking about it all the time. Those four things will drive a deeper wedge between the two of you. Okay, next up is the next section, and this is what to do. And this is how exactly you begin the process of restoring intimacy. And like I said earlier, it is a nine-step process, and I'm going to talk you through all of those nine steps right now. Step number one is admit that there is a problem, all right? You, You cannot ignore this. You cannot just have this false belief that it will take care of itself in time. This does not exist in the real world. That's only in fantasy land. If you're not having sex, it's not going to just get better. You're going to have to take action. You're going to have to actively do things about it. But the very first step, number one, is admitting to yourself and admitting to each other that there is a problem. It doesn't make you weak. It just makes you honest and real. All right? discussing your distance and a mutual desire to restore your intimacy is a very important first step. Think about it. If you can't talk about sex, you won't be able to have it. At least you won't be able to have it in a very pleasurable and fulfilling way for both of you. All right. So you're going to have to talk about it. What you want to do is discuss specifically what has changed, including your feelings, and decide to recreate the bond that you shared when you were first married. You want to commit to creating what you want. You have to create the intimacy that you want. You have to shift from wanting something to doing something. What I mean when I say commit to creating what you want, that really does involve clarity. So you're going to have to get really clear on what it is you want, when, how, and especially why. Why do you want this? Determining and getting really clear on why you want to restore this sexual bond between the two of you, this beautiful sexual relationship, getting to the why is really crucial. I can hear a lot of guys out there saying, oh, I don't like talking about this stuff. But really, you need to be honest with yourself and your partner and explain you know, why you appreciate this sexual relationship together. So you really have to discuss it. You have to discuss specifically what has changed and then decide together to recreate this beautiful bond that you first shared, right? Commit to creating what you want, gain clarity on what that is and set out to make it happen, okay? Step number two is to restore emotional intimacy. Because again, it's really difficult to have sexual intimacy that is over the long term, very fulfilling and very passionate without having an emotional bond and a beautiful emotional intimacy. Okay. So the first and most important task is to restore emotional intimacy. And this is how you do it. First, you create a very heartfelt connection outside 
of the bedroom. You can't, if you're having sexual issues, the last thing you want to do is go into the bedroom to try to fix them. You have to fix them outside of the bedroom first. So create a very heartfelt connection between the two of you again. You want to increase the quantity and quality of time you spend together. This is one of the things that's going to help you create that heartfelt reconnection, okay? You want to increase non-sexual physical intimacy. I'm talking holding hands, kissing, cuddling, touching. All of these things are especially important. To give and receive non-sexual physical intimacy with no further expectations for sex or having it lead to sex, that is what's going to nurture both partners. That's going to go a long way towards restoring your trust and your intimacy. Restoring trust and restoring this connection, this bond is crucial in restoring emotional intimacy. Sometimes giving your partner space, maybe some time alone, that can also be helpful as well. And you really want to court each other again. Go out on dates. Go back and remember the first couple of dates that you went on and when you were really in love and where you got engaged. Go back and and you don't want to like reenact those in a really cheesy way, but just go back to those places, revisit, do the fun things that you did when you first started dating, bring variety in and, and start spending time together that has nothing to do with anything sex related, just fun times where you're laughing, spending time together and a lot of physical touch. That's what's going to restore your emotional intimacy. All right. Now, the third step is to completely forgive past transgressions. And I realize this might be difficult without professional help, especially if you've suffered any kind of extreme hurt, like having an affair or an addiction or the loss of a child. Any major trauma in your life can be really hard to forgive your partner, to forgive yourself. So if that's the case, reach out and get professional help because this is step number three out of nine steps. You've got to forgive yourself and each other. So if you do try this on your own, just be really careful, but don't hesitate to reach out for professional help. It doesn't make you weak. It doesn't make you unknowledgeable or unwise. It makes you actually really strong because it shows, you know, when you have the courage and strength to reach out and get help, it shows commitment and it does show strength and it does show intelligence and wisdom and it shows the amount of love that you have for each other, right? Now, if you do try to go through a whole forgiveness process on your own, what you want to do is put yourselves through forgiveness exercises to completely forgive each other and yourself for all past transgressions. And I'm talking go all the way back to the day you met. Sit down and do an exercise where you write it out on paper, you read it to each other, you forgive each other, you forgive yourselves. I know it sounds like a lot of work, and it is. <laughs> it is a lot of work. It can be emotionally draining, but it is crucial for moving forward. I conduct a few exercises in my marriage program with my couples to help them not only forgive each other, but all people in their lives that have hurt them all the way back to childhood. This process takes about two weeks when I put my couples through it. For couples who have experienced extreme trauma or lots of trauma in their lives, it can take four to six weeks. So this isn't for the faint of heart. If you're a person who's experienced extreme trauma or a lot of trauma, please don't try to go through these exercises alone because it can actually cause further damage to yourself and to your partner and to the marriage, to your relationship as a whole. Reach out to me or another professional and get help with this. But it is step number three. And this step, you have to you have to foster forgiveness in all areas before you move on to step number four. So it is a very integral part in the very, very beginning. Okay? 
And like I said, it's a very profound step, but it will be very freeing to you and feel really good when it's done. And it really isn't as hard as you think, especially if you're professionally guided. It really isn't as difficult as you think. Like I said, it really is necessary to move on to step number four. Forgiveness is crucial for understanding each other and maintaining close connection, right? I'm going to say that one more time. Forgiveness is crucial to understand each other and to maintain a close connection, right? So again, that's step number three. If you need help, reach out to me or another professional if it's, you know, extreme or if you've suffered a lot of trauma in your life. Okay, let's move on. Step number four, that is to improve communication quality, all right? That means talk more. What I suggest is planning two or three times a week where you can give each other a solid 20 to 30 minutes of uninterrupted time to talk and so that you can talk about important matters, topics of interest, and things that are meaningful to you both. If it's awkward in the beginning, and for many couples it is, try communication exercises. Go to a couple's retreat. I'm going to be hosting one coming up in February of 2018. Or try fun activities that you both enjoy. Couples spend, on average listen to this because this is really depressing and really discouraging. Couples spend on average 20 minutes a week in real conversation. 20 minutes a week. That includes household and family scheduling and planning, small chit chat, what do you need from the grocery store and other mundane topics. 20 minutes a week. That is insane to me. Friendship is the foundation necessary to hold a marriage together in difficult times. And these talks will foster a deeper and closer friendship. The talks will get easier as you go along. The more you practice this, the easier it gets. And then you're going to be talking constantly. Really beautiful stuff. You also want to foster intimate conversation. So don't just set aside 20 to 30 minutes to talk. You really want to foster, especially during those 20 to 30 minutes, a few times a week, you want to foster intimate conversation. That means talking about things that have happened about other people or what you plan to do tomorrow or this weekend. Those are all superficial or surface level communications. There's nothing wrong with those. Those are really great things to talk about, but you don't want to leave it at that, right? Intimate conversation does not include those things. Intimate conversation is where you talk about your feelings, your thoughts, your goals, your desires. Those are the conversations that foster intimacy, Now, when you must have difficult conversations, you want to use specific words to depict exactly how you feel. So instead of saying, this is getting old, or comments like, I'm just getting so tired of this, I can't take much more. Instead of talking like that, what you really want to do is use I statements, such as, I'm feeling rejected, or I'm feeling hurt, I'm feeling unloved or neglected, or I'm feeling pressured, or whatever other emotion that you're feeling, you want to use I statements, I'm feeling this. That way your spouse can better understand where you're coming from. Understanding your perspective and you understanding your partner's perspective, this is what's going to help foster a deeper, more intimate emotional connection. And it also breeds more trust and more respect and even more acceptance. All right. You also want to pay attention to nonverbal cues and participate in active listening so you can better understand each other. When a couple understands each other, they will both be more relaxed and they'll be a little more vulnerable and will feel a greater connection. It's really difficult for people to open up and be vulnerable if they're not relaxed. Okay. 
So partners do not connect when they don't feel understood and aligned. But if you can relax and really treat each other with a lot of respect and understanding, you both will feel understood and that is what's going to make you feel more aligned with each other. So pay attention to nonverbal cues. If you notice that your partner is really tense, do something to help them relax, right? Look at their facial expressions. Look at their posture. If they're slumped over, they're either depressed, thinking negative things, feeling negative things, feeling tired, overwhelmed. If their posture is really good and they're upright and they have a little pep to their step, then you know that they have a little more energy, they're a little more positive. So really pay attention to those nonverbal cues and see how you can help that way. All right. So just to recap really, really quickly, I'm just going to go through the first four that we've talked about so far, the things that you want to do. Number one, admit there's a problem. Number two, restore emotional intimacy. Number three, completely forgive past transgressions, both of your partner and of yourself. And number four, improve communication quality. All right. Now we're going to move on to number five, and that is develop a soul connection. What do I mean by that? I'm talking about a spiritual connection between the two of you. Now, you know, there's an emotional connection, there's a mental connection, there's physical connection, but a soul connection or a spiritual connection is something that you have to actively work on throughout the duration of life with your partner. So how you do this, if you have a religious affiliation, I recommend praying every day. This will definitely foster a soul connection together. Meditation is another way. Meditate together. It doesn't have to be a guided meditation where there's words out loud. It can be just music or even in silence, but meditating together is a great way. Reading out loud together, reading each other's stories or if it's self-help books or anything that you both find interesting that you're wanting to learn together, reading out loud together actually helps foster this soul connection. And then ultimately, obviously, sex definitely develops your soul connection, right? Now, step number six in restoring intimacy is creating variety in your life and in your marriage. What this means is you want to step outside of your norm. You want to do things that you don't normally do. So go on more date nights alone. Go on date nights with other couples. Try new hobbies together. The list is endless. All you have to do is go to Google and just Google, you know, couple dates, you know, things that couples can do on dates, new hobbies, try sports, try all kinds of things. You can take turns picking out what you're going to try or what you're going to do next. Try to pick things that you know both people will enjoy a little bit. But if you really don't have many things in common as far as likes and hobbies, then go back and forth and be willing to try new things that your that your partner enjoys as, as well. But bringing in variety into your life, anything outside of the norm will definitely help create a deeper bond between the two of you. Okay. Number seven is to learn and practice the five love languages. Now, I'm not going to go into this deeply since I've talked about this in the past and I've written blog articles and done video talks on the love languages. And also it's, it's everywhere in the world. Most people have read the love languages books. If not, I recommend them. They're great. But if you're interested in, in not reading the book and you just want to learn a little bit more about the love languages and what they are and how to use them, you can go to my website. I have a blog article. So my website is www.jenniferprice.com forward slash blog. 
and just scroll through the blog posts and find the one where you can use the search engine and, and find the one on the five love languages because I break down how to use them. And I recommend this article, even if you know the love languages fairly well, I recommend this article anyway because there's one common mistake that many people make when they read the book and they set out to serve each other using each other's love languages. And that is that we tend to love our partner the way in which we want to be loved. So if we really value physical touch, we can touch our partner all day long to show them love. And we think that that's going to be really satisfying and fulfilling to them. However, if their love language is not physical touch, let's say their love language is acts of service or words. Let's, let's use words of affirmation. If their love language is words of affirmation, you can touch them and shower them with physical affection all day long. But if you're not using words of affirmation, you're speaking a foreign language to them. They're not going to feel loved. So you have to find out what your partner's top two love languages are and speak those love languages to them. Make sense? Because if you're not doing that, you're not fully loving your partner. You're not really fulfilling their needs. And it is your duty as, as this person who's supposed to be with them for life. This is your responsibility to know what they are and and to serve your partner in that way. Now, here's an interesting fact regarding love languages. Our love languages change over time. Now, during childhood, a child's love languages can change every six months. And then adults, we don't tend to change as quickly as children do, but we can. So I really advise people at least once a year, if not maybe every six months, to revisit the idea, to think about them, and to just do a little bit of a self assessment and see where you are with the love languages. What are you craving right now? And make sure you tell your partner and be really specific in ways that they can serve you. So if you like physical touch, tell them exactly what types of physical touch you really value. Is it holding hands or is it walking arm in arm? Do you like a head rub or a foot rub instead? Do you like a shoulder massage or you just want to be held? So give them very specific ways that they can speak your love languages. Because again, remember, we're not mind readers. And so you can't expect your partner to just know these things, even if you've been married 50 years. I don't care. You still have to speak up and let your partner know your desires and your needs. Okay, let's move on to number eight. Number eight is to realign your priorities. Now, This means that you need to put your partner first, just like you did when you first got together, when you were falling in love, when you were engaged, when you were first married. Go back and remember that time. Do you remember when you were first married or or when you first got engaged? If you remember back to that time, you'll probably remember that you were willing to do just about anything for that person. You would overlook little silly things that right now drive you crazy and annoy you. Back then, you might have thought they were cute. You would serve each other in just about any way that you could find. You thought everything they did was cute and sweet, and now they annoy you, right? So go back and remember how things were when you first fell in love, when you first were engaged, when you first got married. Do this, and you will instantly start to see more hope for your relationship. You'll start to feel more excitement and relief and joy. But that's only if you go back and remember these things in a really sincere way. If you go back and remember these things with hatred or resentment or bitterness in your heart, it's not going to work. You really have to do, you really have to feel sincere joy and appreciation for your spouse. 
And remember, when it comes to realigning your priorities and putting your spouse first again, remember that if you contribute nothing, you're going to get nothing in return. But the more you contribute to your spouse, expecting nothing back, the more you contribute, the more you're going to get back, the more the relationship as a separate entity is going to get back. So you get out of it what you put in, right? So realign your priorities, put your spouse first. Now, if you're doing this, if you're putting your spouse first and they're not putting you first, continue to do this because sometimes when you make this shift and it, and it is a new shift for you, sometimes it takes weeks and with some partners, even months before they realize, okay, this, this new behavior is here to stay. I can trust it. Now I can open up and put my spouse first too. Some people are just too scared. They're scared of experiencing more pain, more fear, more disappointment. So they might be guarded and they might think that your new behavior of putting them first is going to go away in a week or two. So they may not trust it. So you might have to be patient here, continue to put your partner first for a little while, and hopefully in time they will. If not, if it doesn't work, feel free to reach out to me, shoot me an email, find me on social media, but reach out to me and we can discuss what to do at that point. But chances are after a couple weeks, a couple months at most, you will start to see some positive change, okay? Next step, step number nine. This is the last step in restoring sexual intimacy in your marriage, and that is to have sex. But getting to this point, you have to be very patient with each other, all right? You have to maintain open communication. You have to have sometimes what many counselors and therapists refer to as a bridge to desire, So it's like a bridge from, you know, over a river from one piece of land to the next. You want to have a bridge that leads to desire. So examples could be cuddling or spooning on the sofa. That could lead to sex. You could take a shower together. That could be the bridge to desire, the bridge to sex. You could use massage, take turns massaging each other. That could be the bridge to desire. So you might, you know, you might want to consider having this conversation about what your bridge to desire could be and start having fun and practicing different things to see what works for you. The next little tip here would be to schedule intimate, sexy time. Now, I know that doesn't sound spontaneous. And especially if you've been married for a few years, you think, well, where's the spontaneity in that? But it's okay because look, this is what I tell my couples. This is, you've probably heard me say this before. Planned sex is better than no sex, right? And plus, if you plan it, it really gives you something to look forward to. So if you say, okay, we're going to have date night Saturday night, whether it's in-home date night or out, if Saturday night is our night to have sex and we're going to have a beautiful dinner together or go for a walk or a swim or, or whatever it is you like to enjoy doing, knowing that it's going to lead to sex gives you something to look forward to and get excited about all week. Also, when you plan sex, actually going so far as to put it on your calendar, it also eliminates rejection because if you both say, okay, we're going to have sex Tuesday and okay, we're going to have sex on Saturday, then you both know that the chances of having sex between now and then because of busy schedules or whatever's going on in your lives, you're not going to be as likely to try before then and then experience rejection. If you So if you know it's coming on Saturday, then there's no rejection, there's no hurt and pain that comes with that. You just have Saturday to look forward to. So if it's not happening spontaneously for you often, then go ahead and plan it. But make sure that this last step number nine is, you know, this is, this is the step you want to work on after you've experienced forgiveness, reestablished your connection, 
and developed a healthy communication. All right, so you've got to go through these in order. Now, I'm not saying don't have sex at all while you're going through this process. I'm not saying that at all. Don't Please don't misunderstand me. But to actively work on improving your sex life together, you know, frequently, I mean, that's, that's the part that you want to wait on and, and have this as step number nine. I hope that makes sense. Okay, now I want to move into medical conditions because there are medical conditions that make sexual intimacy difficult or even non-existent. One example obviously would be paralysis. If a couple cannot experience sexual intimacy because of paralysis or some other medical condition, something that, that you know has happened so that they absolutely cannot, they need to increase intimate activity in other areas to be able to maintain connection and closeness and overall marital passion. Erectile dysfunction and vaginal dryness, these are two. Now, these are embarrassing to talk about for many people, I know, and they're embarrassing to experience and to have to acknowledge with your partner. But just realize that erectile dysfunction, vaginal dryness, vaginal pain, these are things, these are not conditions that should prevent sexual intimacy. There are holistic things that you can do for these, okay? So if you or your spouse are experiencing erectile dysfunction, vaginal pain, vaginal dryness, please alert your medical doctor right away because erectile dysfunction, for example, is one of the first symptoms of cardiovascular disease and diabetes, all right? So you really want to alert your medical professional and let them know what's going on. You can always reach out to me to get my opinion as well. You know, I can I can point you in the right direction to experts who can help diagnose and help you through through these very sensitive issues, okay? Now, if any of these steps that I've outlined today so far feel too risky for you to conduct on your own, please reach out to me for help. I go in depth with all of these steps and so much more in the program, the marriage program that I offer and that I put my clients through. If these are too risky, if there's too much pain, if there's too much resentment, if you've suffered an affair, an addiction of some sort, any type of trauma like that, you really do need a professional to guide you through that, right? Find somebody, reach out to me, but you really do need a guide to guide you back to restoring your intimacy. So don't hesitate to reach out to me if you wanna talk more about that, okay? Now, by restoring emotional closeness and non-sexual intimacy, couples will notice a natural improvement in their sex life. Now, I'm going to say that one more time because I don't think people really fully understand the magnitude and the power behind this. So I'm going to say this one more time. Restoring emotional closeness and non-sexual intimacy, that is when couples will notice a natural improvement in their sex life. And when I say natural improvement, what I mean is a bulk of it, you won't have to actively work on. It will just naturally happen. But you've got to work on the emotional closeness, the emotional intimacy, and the non-sexual physical intimacy. All right? Now, if you need help, you can set up an appointment to talk with me. Just go to jenniferprice.com forward slash apply. So that's www.jenniferprice.com forward slash apply. 
All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to The Marriage Show. I really enjoy talking about sex and restoring intimacy and relationships with you today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with everyone you know. Post it on your Facebook wall. Email it to your friends. Text it to them. Just share it with everyone you know so we can get the word out and it can help more relationships, inspire more people to live a better life and to have a closer, more meaningful relationship with their partner. Also, if you don't mind, leave me a five-star review on iTunes because the more five-star reviews we have, the more ratings, more subscriptions, iTunes will push it towards the top. This episode will get into the hands of more people. And together, you and I, we can change more lives that way. So head over and subscribe and leave me a five-star review if you don't mind. Also, tell me what you would like me to discuss on this show. So find me on any kind of social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever, or just email me directly, but leave me your suggestion. Whatever it is you want to learn, let me know and I will deliver. All right, guys, for everything else I discussed on today's episode, you can check it out in the show notes found at themarriageshow.com. Until next time, love one another. Alright, let's talk about sex, baby. Sing it, let's talk about you. Sing it, let's sing it.